to continue to praise God in the deepest grave, in dark trials, when the morning falls, we look to the Lord. The Lord is strong to save, right? Not our strength, not our own ability, not our own steadfastness and consistency, but in the Lord, in the Lord's strength. That's why we're here this morning, not as independent people that have everything together, but as dependent people, relying on a perfect, holy God. My name is John Lee. I'm one of the pastors here at Bethany Baptist Church. It brings me joy to bring you God's word this morning. Uh, last Sunday, we looked at Hebrews chapter 7. This Sunday, we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 8. So go and grab your Bibles and open it to Hebrews chapter 8. And like last week, we're going to look at the whole chapter. This chapter is half the length. So we'll see how long the sermon goes. Hebrews chapter 8. If you're using a pew Bible, it's going to be on page 1065. 1065, this is the first time that you've used the Bible. The big numbers are chapter, num- chapter numbers. The small numbers are the verse numbers. We're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 8. Now, the main point of what is being said is this. We have this kind of high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of a sanctuary and the true tabernacle that was set up by the Lord and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it was necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he wouldn't be a priest, since there are those offering the gifts prescribed by the law. These serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses warned when he was about to complete the tabernacle. For God said, be careful that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain." But Jesus has now obtained a superior ministry. To that degree, he is the mediator of a better covenant, which has been established on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second one. But finding fault with his people, he says, See the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their ancestors on the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. I showed no concern for them, says the Lord, because they did not continue in my covenant. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. 
I will be their God, and they will be my people. And each people will not teach his fellow citizen, and, and each his brother or sister, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, and at least to the greatest of them. For I will forgive their wrongdoing, and I will never again remember their sins. By saying a new covenant, he has declared that the first is obsolete. And what is obsolete and growing old is about to pass away. Let's pray. Lord, we want your word not just to be in our minds, but also in our hearts. In order to understand your word, Lord, we can't do it without your help. So we admit that we are powerless to comprehend your word without you this morning. So we trust, Lord, that you would help us do the thing that you promised that your word would do. Open our eyes. Help us to see your glory in your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We have food at home. My attempt to convince my mom to eat out had failed. And her response was not a command. It was a statement. We have food at home. And inside that statement were many other statements. You ungrateful child. (laughs) Shut up. Sit down. Do you understand how hard it is for me to cook you a meal every single day? All those things wrapped up in one sentence. We have food at home. See, the problem with myself as a child, as an ungrateful twerp, was that I didn't understand the greatness of what had already been provided for me. I was dissatisfied with what my mom already had to offer. So I looked for other things. I looked for in and out And my mom, in saying we have food at home, is, is simultaneously instructing an idea as well as a command in light of that idea. We have food at home. You have everything that you need. So stop looking elsewhere. The author of Hebrews is doing the same thing here in this passage. If you want to know what the main point of this passage and what the main point of the entire book of Hebrews is, uh, it doesn't take much work. Look at verse 1. Now, the main point of what is being said is this. Any guesses to what the main point is? We have this kind of high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary, A true tabernacle is set up by the Lord and not man. This is the main idea of the whole book. We have this kind of high priest. You have Jesus. And in light of that, the author of Hebrews is making lots of other statements underneath it. That Jesus is everything that you need. That Jesus is better than anything else could possibly offer you. That you should stop looking to other things and and look to Christ. All of that encapsulated in this one sentence. We have this kind of high priest. 
in the heavens. And, and what the author does in, in the rest of this book and, and in chapters 8, 9, and 10 in particular is he takes time to focus and zoom in on what Jesus does, on what Jesus does. So earlier in the book, we talked a lot about Jesus' kind of godness and manness. There's no contradiction or mixture, but that Jesus is truly God and truly man. And now, using the tool of comparison, the author of Hebrews is going to show that Jesus' work that he does as priest is better than anything that the Old Covenant could possibly offer. That's better than anything that the world can offer. So, so here's another restatement of the main idea for us this morning. Jesus is the better priest of a better covenant with better promises. That Jesus is the better priest of a better covenant with better promises. That's me taking the statement, we have a great high priest, unpacking it a little bit more in terms of what that means. We have a better priest of a better covenant with better promises. And there's two kind of images or symbols that, that the author uses here in chapter eight to get at this idea. Number one, Jesus is in a better temple. Jesus is in a better temple. And secondly, Jesus brings a better covenant. Jesus brings a better covenant. Let's look first at that first point. Jesus is in a better temple. Read with me from verse one. Now, the main point of what is being said is this. We have this kind of a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and the true tabernacle that was set up by the Lord and not man. Not man. Here, the author provides a contrast. The Levitical priests that we looked at earlier in chapter 7, they serve where? The earth. They serve in the earth in a tent set up by man that follows the commandments of God. And, and in contrast to these people that are working in kind of dusty environments with grime around them, doing earthly ministry, the author of Hebrews makes the point that in contrast, Jesus is in a tabernacle that's not set up at, on the earth, but is set up where? In the heavens. In the heavens. Not just in the heavens, but set up by who? Set up by the Lord himself. Sometimes we can get into comparative envy of other people. People that drive better cars, right? Or have better technology or better clothing. The author here is deliberately doing a comparison to say Jesus is better because he works somewhere better. That working in Beverly Hills means that you have a higher status someone who might work in bellflower. And since Jesus is working in the heavens, that he serves in a better location, which makes Jesus better than any of the other priests. Not just that, he serves in a true tabernacle, a real tabernacle, which means that the other priests are serving where? In a what? In a fake tabernacle. He explains more as we go on. Look at verse three. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. 
Therefore, it was necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he wouldn't be a priest since there are those offering the gifts prescribed by the law, by the law. So, the author here is making a standard point about what priests do. Priests go into a tabernacle or a temple, and what do they offer? Yeah, gifts and sacrifices. And those things on the earth would look like things like like sheep, goats, bulls, sacrifices that you offer in order to receive forgiveness, right, and mediatorial blessing from God. And here he's making the note that Jesus doesn't offer bulls and goats because those are things that you offer in earthly tents, right? Those are things that you do when you're on the earth. But since Jesus is in the heavens, he needs to offer something else. That is a ticking time bomb that won't go off until chapter 10. Yeah, so he just leaves that there, a little kind of grenade, rolls it in, doesn't explode yet. Verse 5. These serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses warned when he was about to complete the tabernacle. For God said, be careful that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. Okay. What are some of the words that you see describing this tabernacle on the earth here in verse 5? See copy, see shadow, and you see pattern. Copy, shadow, pattern. I'm sure all of you in your Bible reading plans get bored in the extent of the meticulous instructions about setting up the tabernacle, right? Specific measurements. This thing needs to be in that corner, right? This thing needs to be in that corner. It's kind of like my mom when you have people over, right? And the reason why Moses is so meticulous in the instructions on how this tabernacle ought to be set up is because heaven is utterly immaculate, Right? You see the instruction there that's quoting Exodus 2540 that you have to be careful that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. So after Moses leads the Israelite people out of the land of Egypt and they arrive in Mount Sinai, God's glory descends on Mount Sinai in a cloud. And Moses climbs up that mountain while the Israelites stay on the ground in order to be in the very presence of God. And what God does while Moses is in that very presence is he gives him instructions that if I'm going to dwell with you, this is what this tabernacle needs to look like. And he instructs them to follow the pattern that was shown to him on the mountain. So, So if Moses is on the mountain, are the Israelite people above Moses or below Moses? Below Moses. Right? It's almost like Moses is in the very presence of God. He sees what the presence of God is supposed to look like. It's shown to him. And then when it goes down, he tries to imitate that in his instructions about the tabernacle. This goes there. This goes here. And, and notice the words that are used to describe this earthly tabernacle. It's described as a copy, shadow, and pattern. Copy, shadow, Pattern. Now, now, if there's a copy, what does that mean there is? An original, right? If there's a copy, that means that there's an original. If there's a shadow, what does that mean that there is? This is something of substance, an object, right, that, that provides a shadow. 
Now, now, if the heavenly thing is a pattern, right, that means the earthly thing needs to follow that pattern. In other words, the heavenly tabernacle is the real thing. The earthly tabernacle is just the shadow. It's a difference between you as the person and your Instagram account. You're not your Instagram account, despite what you may think, right? But your Instagram or your social media or your own photos are imitations. They're copies. They point to the reality of the real thing. And all the author of Hebrews is trying to say here is that the real thing is better. And we can see that, right? The real thing is better. I've played with Hot Wheels before. Real cars are better, right? I'm sure that all of us can sit down and try to have an intentional conversation with a Barbie doll. But people are better. And what the author of Hebrews is trying to say here in verse 5 is that if Jesus is serving in a real tabernacle where God actually dwells, really dwells, in the most intimate place of God himself, that that place is what? It's better. That's better. Verse 6. But Jesus has now obtained a superior ministry. And to that degree, he is the mediator of a better covenant, which has been established on better promises. See, Jesus is in a superior ministry, which means that the other ministry is what? Inferior, right? And in the upcoming chapters of the book, the author is going to labor to show why the new covenant that we've received is better than the old covenant. That what you have right now as a Christian is better than whatever the Old Testament Israelites had, whether it was a pillar of fire or split Red Sea or miracles before their very eyes, that what you have in this new covenant is better, is better. So that's the first reason why Jesus is better, because he's in a better temple, because he's in a better temple. Here's the second reason. Jesus brings a better covenant. Jesus brings a better covenant. Verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second one. For a second one. Okay. Well, the author of Hebrews is saying here in verse 7 is that the first covenant has what? Faults. He says that it's actually faulty. And that because it's faulty, that means a new one has to come. You have to look elsewhere. And so then the author busts out the Old Testament passage of Jeremiah 31 to explain how God, even in the Old Testament, was planning for this new covenant to be better, promising a new covenant. So there's five reasons in Jeremiah 31 why this new covenant is better than the old covenant. Okay, so consider this like a sub-sermon to point number two. Number one, the old covenant is faulty. The old covenant is faulty. Look at verse 8. But finding fault with his people, he says, See, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their ancestors on the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. I showed no concern for them, says the Lord because they did not continue in my covenant. 
so, the old covenant is faulty. And the natural question to ask when you see the old covenant being described as faulty is, does that mean that God gave a broken covenant to his people? Right? Does that mean that our Old Testament has errors in it or somehow that's broken, right? Or that it doesn't accomplish what it's meant to do, right? And for that, I have a couple of illustrations to kind of understand what we mean when we say that the Old Covenant is faulty, okay? The first would be divorce, divorce, okay? So now before Ronald Reagan brought in no-fault divorce where you could just say that you had irreconcilable differences, you had to have fault in order to divorce your spouse, right? So you go into a court of law, You'd have to explain that someone had committed some kind of grievous action that would give cause to break the covenant of marriage, right? Whether it was adultery or abuse or some other reason for why the marriage covenant needed to be broken. In that case, it's not that the marriage covenant that's given is faulty in some way, like the concept of marriage altogether is bad, but it's that someone had contributed something so erroneous or so bad that then that marriage covenant is broken and faulty. Does that make sense? So in the case of a divorce, the reason why a, a marriage covenant would be broken would be on the fault of a person, on the fault of a person. And here, look at verse nine. Why does this covenant get broken? You see at the end of verse nine there, because what? because they did not continue in my covenant. So whose fault is it for this covenant being broken? Israel's fault. So in other words, it's not that the laws are inherently bad, right? Or that, or that the instructions that they received weren't perfect. God was giving them perfect instructions because he was a perfect God. The problem wasn't with God's instructions. The problem was with them. The problem was with them. So, so you can see the fault in the Old Covenant being with them because of their actions. But it's not just that. In verse 7, you see that if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second one. Right? And this promise of a new covenant happens in the New Testament or the Old Testament. It happens in the Old Testament. In other words, God had already been intending to provide a better covenant for these people. A better plan. In other words, the Old Covenant has planned obsolescence in it. Okay, that's a big word, planned obsolescence. Right? Uh, Brian has a really old iPhone. Right? Uh, he tries his best to resuscitate his iPhone to last as long as possible, whether it's replacing the battery right, or replacing a screen. You can look at his phone after service if you'd like. The truth is, Apple designs iPhones to fail. Why? So that you what? You buy a new iPhone, right? That's planned obsolescence and honestly really shady business practice, right? It's the same thing with the Old Covenant. It's not like God was surprised that the Old Covenant failed in some way. He expresses disappointment. He expresses even grief over the sins of the Israelite people, but he intends for this thing to fail. There's planned obsolescence there. Right? The old covenant is designed to fail because it places expectations on you that you can't meet. You can't meet the expectations of the old covenant. You can't follow the words of this law. And that old covenant was designed to be broken. 
right? Martin Luther talks about the three uses of the law, right? The first use is to reveal who God is, right? To reveal who God is. That when you see that you're not supposed to steal from your neighbor or you're not supposed to lie, that it tells you about who God is, that he's holy, that he's righteous, that he's good. The second use of the law, which is what the author of Hebrews is focusing in on here, is to reveal your sinfulness, right? To reveal your sinfulness. In other words, the law isn't designed to make you a better person. It doesn't provide the strength for you to obey it. Rather, it's designed to break. In other words, Old Covenant is given so you don't trust in yourself. Because if yourself was so reliable, the Old Covenant would have worked. But it doesn't. It's designed to fail. That's the first reason. The old covenant is faulty. Here's the second reason. The new covenant puts the law in your heart. The new covenant puts the law in your heart. Look at verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. So according to verse 10, where is the law being written in? In their hearts. Now in the Old Covenant, where's the law being written? On stone tablets, right? So Moses comes down with stone tablets, right? And as he comes down, he sees golden calf being worshipped, and he chucks the tablets on the ground and they crack, right? What does that say about the stone? Is it very reliable? No, it's not. And more than that, writing laws into stone doesn't change people's hearts. Parents, you understand this. You could write down as many house rules on your refrigerator as you want. It doesn't change your children's hearts. What does the Lord do here in the new covenant? He writes the law not on some external place where you can see and try to rise up to the occasion, but into the very essence of who you are. In other words, what the new covenant does with the law isn't just kind of write it in your mind so you comprehend what you're supposed to do as though the Bible somehow becomes this manual and how to improve yourself to become good enough. But he writes it into the very fabric of your being, into your heart. Not just knowledge of what you ought to be doing, but the very desire to do it. That, that he changes your soul so that righteousness doesn't look detestable. That so sin doesn't look attractive anymore. And righteousness looks beautiful. Spurgeon says this about the new covenant. He says that the Holy Spirit makes men love the will of God. It makes them delight in all that God delights in. And abhor that which all that God abhors. It is well said in the text that God will do this. For certainly it is not what man can do for himself. The law is fully written in the heart when a man approving the law and appropriating it to himself delights to obey it. You understand what the Lord's doing here with the new covenant? It's not just giving you new rules. He's giving you the desire to do it. A supernatural work that is far better than the old covenant. That's the second reason. Here's a third reason. In the new covenant, everyone knows God. In the new covenant, everyone knows God. Look at verse 11. 
says, and each person will not teach his fellow citizen and each his brother or sister saying, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them. At least the greatest of them. So he describes something that the old covenant did. Then the old covenant, people had to look at each other, their fellow citizen, their brother or sister, and say what? Know the Lord, which implies that in that time, in the nation of Israel, there were people that were not doing what? Knowing the Lord. That they had to keep kind of encouraging each other and giving pep talks to be faithful to God. And you see that all over the Old Testament, don't you? I preached through the book of Judges. What you see there is a repeated reliability of Israel's failure to follow God and be faithful to him. A time after time after time, you see failure after failure after failure. People falling away, going to false gods. And maybe you feel that in churches that you've been to in the past, right? Where you feel like you have to kind of like prod one another to, to care even just a little bit about what Jesus has to say. In this new covenant that God's promising, he's saying that everyone is going to know him from the least to the greatest, from the least to the greatest. That's why we practice church membership here at this church, right? If you wonder why we're such sticklers for making sure that people go through this long, drawn-out, six-week process and the membership interview where he asks you to share the gospel to us in 60 seconds or less. It's not because we're trying to get you to pass some spiritual ACT test, right? The reason why we labor so hard to make sure that we're vetting people coming into the church is because of this truth right here in the new covenant, that everyone in this new covenant community knows him, knows Jesus, So the reason why we fence our table and only allow members of churches to partake in the Lord's Supper, the reason why we labor to make sure that we're clearly articulating the gospel and checking to make sure that every member that joins our church believes in the gospel, is because we believe that in the new covenant, every single person knows the Lord, knows him. And that's why we vet them. And that's why we don't baptize our babies. One more thing. Notice here in verse 11 that says that they will all know me from the least to the greatest. From the least to the greatest. Do you realize what that means? That means that whatever pecking order of ability that you might have in your own mind dissipates with a new covenant. That suddenly knowing God doesn't have to do with the degree of your ability or effort in what God does for you. He promises that they will all know me. That even if you open your Bible and it seems like every single time that you read it that's written in tongues and you don't have the gift of interpretation, that you know the true and living God. That means even in times where you may feel discouraged, like you might not know God well enough, or, or strong enough, or you might not be clear enough, or you're not able enough, that in the new covenant, if you're in Jesus, that you know him, that you know God truly, that you know him truly, that everyone from the least to the greatest will know him. That's why in our disposition towards one another, there's no room for kind of a judgmental superiority in the church. 
right? That even when you look to other people that might be intellectually inferior than you, right? Or less capable than you, or quite frankly, less likable than you. That all of them know the Lord, that the Lord loves them. And you get to extend that care to them as well. It also means that for you, if you feel weak, if you feel afflicted, if you feel discouraged by anything that's going on in your life, that the good news of this new covenant is that it has nothing to do with what you bring, but in what God will do for you, that God knows you and that you know him from the least to the greatest. Reason number four that this new covenant is better. In the new covenant, God forgives your sin. God forgives your sin. Verse 12. For I will forgive their wrongdoing, and I will never again remember their sins. If you're not a Christian here, this is really the main message of, of Christianity that we want you to understand. That Christianity isn't just trying to offer you a rule book for kind of self-improvement or for moral living or how to be a good citizen in your society. The truth is, is that we are all sinners. We've all rebelled against a holy, good, righteous God. But the good news in Christ is that God has sent his son, Jesus Christ, truly God and truly man. That as a great high priest, he lived the perfect life that you and I never could. And on the cross, God punished him for the sins that you and I committed. And he died, paying the penalty in full. But three days later, he rose from the dead ascended to the right hand of the Father in a heavenly temple where he serves right now to intercede for all that would turn from their sins and trust in Jesus. So if you're not a Christian, I wanna urge you, if you need, what you need isn't more instructions. What you need is forgiveness. And you can find forgiveness in the person of Christ. And you can have Christ today. You can have him right now if you turn from your sin and trust in him. Feel free to talk to anyone around you, maybe the friend that brought you. We would love to talk to you more about what it would look like to follow Jesus. Look again at verse 12 here, at the first sentence that, or the first phrase that, that God gives in terms of what he'll do here. It says, for I will forgive their wrongdoing. I will forgive their wrongdoing. Now that word for forgive isn't just the same kind of forgiveness that you may have towards someone that, that wrongs you, right? Someone lies to you and they ask for your forgiveness and you just say, I forgive you. In this case, being merciful or forgiving has a sacrificial element to it, or the fancy theological word would be propitiation. Um, the idea is that God in the temple is, is turning away or showing mercy on you in light of the sacrifice that's given. Right, in light of the sacrifice that's given, that, that he's declaring you covenantally clean, right, that he's providing a covenantal mercy to you. And that means that if that forgiveness is done, that no more sacrifices are necessary. Right? If you go into a temple and you provide a sacrifice, and that sacrifice is satisfactory, that means no more sacrifices need to be given. Sometimes we offer forgiveness to those around us, but we want to see them grovel a little bit, right? We're going to forgive you, but I want to see that you're really sorry. And sometimes we think God treats our sins like that. 
right? That, that even though God forgives us, that we need to do penance, right? Or we need to do something a little bit more to almost make up for the wrongs that we had committed. What God is saying in the new covenant is that there will be none of that. That, that in Jesus, there is full forgiveness. There's full forgiveness. There's not a single thing that you still owe the Lord. No expectation on you in order to earn his approval. That God today, this morning, if you're his child, sees you and has fully forgiven you. You owe God nothing. Because honestly, there's nothing you could give God in the first place. Here's the second thing that you see there in verse 12. He says, I will never again remember their sins. I will never again remember your sins. Have you thought about that? Like God doesn't remember your sins? Now, now, now what the author means here when he says won't remember your sins isn't saying that God somehow gives up his omniscience, Right? That he somehow gives up his all-knowingness and kind of descends lower than God. That's not what he's doing. He's also not saying that God is somehow plugging his ears and just saying, la, 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 whenever he sees you sinning, right? The idea here is the degree to which God is satisfied by Christ's sacrifice on the cross, right? That God doesn't remember your sins and that it has zero effect in his relation with you. That when he looks at you, that he doesn't see you as someone who's messed up, that he's had to somehow make up for. But he sees you as his son or daughter. Psalm 103 says that as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. God is strong enough to fully forget your sin. See, you and I, we're weak. We have a track history of all the things that we regret, don't we? A highlight reel that begins to play in the back of your mind in the darkest of times. A list of failures and regrets that you may have. And the good news here in Hebrews 8.12 is that God is stronger than you. God doesn't remember your sins. He doesn't remember any of it. That persistent sin that you seem like you can't bust out of. God doesn't remember it. That one pivotal giant sin that caused calamity in your life, that God doesn't remember it. That even the thing that you struggle with right now this morning, that you're, that's in the back of your mind when you think about God, that, that you feel might be causing distance between you and him, that God is strong enough to say that he doesn't see that in you. He doesn't remember it at all. And the reason why God doesn't remember your sins is because God sees his son in the heavenly temple. That whenever you sin and Satan may try to tempt you to despair, that Jesus is there at the very right hand of the father saying, I covered that. I paid for that. See, the reason why you and I remember our sins so frequently it's because we forget Christ's grace. And the good news for you and I this morning is that there is more mercy in Christ than sin in you. That when you look to Jesus, 
That, that the grace that he provides for you in this new covenant is so satisfactory, so comprehensive, so complete, that you don't need to wear the burden of your sin any longer. God wants you to lay them down because he doesn't remember it. He doesn't want you to either. And what that, what that forgiveness does for us is that it allows for us to address our sin, not in light of its power over us, but in light of Christ's power over it. Right? When, when God doesn't remember our sins here, he's not saying that your godliness doesn't matter. Right, that somehow you could just go on sinning as much as you want. What, what God is talking about here is a grace that's so strong that any judgment that can come from your sin is completely dissipated. And the good news for you and I this morning is that that power that dissipates the judgment on sin is also capable of transforming you to righteousness. Right, that that grace is able to help you to grow in righteousness. So what we don't want to do is we don't want to be in despair over our sin, but we don't want to be ignorant of them either, right? Christ's grace is powerful enough to help you grow in Jesus. But the way we do that is by realizing and seeing and receiving grace first. Does that make sense? Receiving grace first. Here's a fifth reason, last reason for us this morning. Because the old covenant is going to pass away. The old covenant is going to pass away. Look at verse 13 there. By saying a new covenant, he has declared that the first is obsolete. And was obsolete and growing old is about to pass away. I love that the author of Hebrews ends this quote with Jeremiah 31 with just one sentence. Right? He doesn't exposit the text like he does in other Old Testament passages in the book. It's almost like Jeremiah 31 is so clear on its own in terms of what the new covenant is going to do that he has nothing more to explain. There's nothing left to say in the sermon. Right? He just reads Jeremiah 31 with all the things that God's going to do, and he just kind of drops the mic. Right? Christ is going to do all of these things. And to kind of sum up his point, he says this in verse 13, that when he says a new covenant, that means that the first is obsolete, right? And what's obsolete and growing old is about to pass away, planned obsolescence. And what's obsolete is expired in light of the better covenant that's going to come, that came in the person of Christ, that this new covenant is so much better, so much more effective, that it actually accomplishes the very thing that the old covenant made you think that you could do. And therefore, the old covenant is going to pass away. Now, that idea of going to pass away doesn't mean that's still effective today. Like somehow you could go back and still do the, the Jewish traditions and Levitical sacrifices well enough that you could also be accepted by God. There's kind of two paths to heaven, right? Doing Old Testament sacrifices or doing Jesus. That's not what he's saying when he's saying that the Old Covenant is still around. All he means by that is that the Old Covenant is still around because this earth is still around, right? This earth is still around. People are still around. Israel is still around. And in that sense, the Old Covenant is still around. People are still going to be around. 
thinking that they could provide sacrifices and make themselves good enough to earn the approval of God, even though that covenant in its very essence is going to be ineffective at doing it. But when the new covenant is fully manifested, when Jesus comes back, when he establishes the new heavens and the new earth, that old covenant's going to pass away because it was designed to expire. It wasn't meant to last, right? But this new covenant is going to be permanent. It's going to last forever. It will never pass away. Why is it never going to pass away? Look back at Jeremiah 31. Look at the passage. Do you know what phrase you see over and over and over again when God talks about the new covenant? What are the words that you see there? He says, I will. I will. Why did the old covenant expire? Because they didn't obey, right? Because God provided rules and regulations that they couldn't meet. But in this new covenant, it's not dependent on you anymore. It's dependent on God. God makes promises about what he's going to do, that he will write the law on your hearts, right? That that he will provide a knowledge of you in such a way that the effect is just that you know him. There's nothing that you did to know him. God just writes his law on your heart and you know him. There's nothing that you do to provide forgiveness for your own sin, but God does it. He forgives you, not the other way around, right? That he will never again remember your sins. So the reason why this new covenant is never going to pass away is because God never passes away. And he meets every single condition that this new covenant provides. So have you gone to him? Are you satisfied in this Jesus? What the author of Hebrews is trying to get you to see, we have Christ. You don't have to look for something else to satisfy you. You don't have to look for new experiences or or new revelations or or a greater kind of feeling of who God is through more prayer or or more fasting or, or more doing. You have the best thing that you could possibly ask for right now. You have him. Herman Boving talks about this a lot with theology. And one of the differences that that Reformed theology and kind of a big God theology in life, what God does for you does and shifts in the way that we understand God is that while other people try to achieve an experience of who God is, right? While other people work and work to kind of have this existential experience, almost like entering into varsity Christianity, right? Or having some kind of retreat high that the Reformed person, right? Or the person that kind of understands texts like Hebrews 8 It's not that they don't care about the experience, but rather than working to achieve the experience, they work from it. They work from it. As in you, if you've come to Jesus, you already have him. You already have him. You already have this precious treasure in the new covenant, which means you don't have to look for any gimmick to kind of give you a better experience. You don't have to look to what you do to somehow make up for all the bad things that you've done in your life. You only need Jesus, and you already have him. That's why the 
the author of Hebrews is able to open the ser- this sermon and, and really summarize the main point of this book with that sentence, we have such a high priest. Because when you realize the kind of savior that we have in Jesus, you realize that he's enough. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that that Christ really is enough for us. Lord, it's hard for us to believe that in our hearts. It's hard for us to believe that when we sin. It's hard to believe that in our weakness. We ask, Lord, that you would help us by your spirit. Empower us. Give us the strength to remember Christ's grace so we don't remember the judgment of sin, but that we see the grace that we have in Christ that you give us the strength to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, We're going to go ahead and take the next couple minutes to share takeaways with a neighbor. If you're a guest here, don't feel an obligation to share. You can just snoop in on other people's conversations. This is what we do. Let's go ahead and take some time to do that now.